And now, live, it's time. Which team, by colors alone, is identifiable around the world? It's time for the JT the Brick Show. Which team, by slogan, commitment to excellence? On Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. Just win, baby. All those things are the Raiders. Here's your host, JT the Brick. Welcome back. Hour number two of the show. JT with you. We are brought to you by Remy Martin. Team up for excellence. When we talk X's and O's, we're talking about Remy Martin. Raise your cocktail game. Thanks to Mike Ciani, who joined us in the first hour of the show. It's the 24-year anniversary of Holyfield Tyson 2, which I was ringside for. We'll touch on that in a little bit. Kurt Heelan from NBC with the NBA playoffs coming up in about a half hour. Newspaper comes to my house every Sunday, just like the movies. I walk out, I pick up the newspaper, sit in the backyard, pop the sports page and the cover story by our friend Vinny Bonsignor, leading by example, breaking barriers, part of the Raiders' legacy. Such a fantastic read. I wanted Vinny to come on, our teammate, here on Radio, uh, Raider Nation Radio, to update us on this. Vinny, great work on this column and something that I think probably got going because of the news of Carl Nassib last week. Yeah, no doubt about it. And first of all, thanks for having me, JT. Truly appreciate it, as usual uh, and always. And, you know, it's it's so it's such a dichotomy sometimes with the Raiders. Uh, and, you know, I just tweeted a, a, a link to the story out and how they've always been two distinctly different faces, but have been able to always pull it off simultaneously. The one face, you know, the swashbuckling, um, you know, uh, pushing things to the limits, whether it's with the NFL or the, you know, colleagues in the NFL, um, the, 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 the rough and tumble Raider image uh, that they have always embodied. But simultaneous to that is the all-inclusiveness, the tolerance, uh, r- uh, breaking down racial barriers, never looking at somebody's, you know, uh, uh, skin color or heritage or whatever the case might be when it comes to making important hires and putting people in the position of power. They've always, you know, in their mind, fought to go for the right person po- uh, as, as possible, regardless of anything else. Uh, but and, and in addition to that, always pushing um, forward on racial equality when it comes to hiring practices and everything else. And it's, it really is remarkable what they've been able to do. And, and, you know, as the years move on, I think some people tend to forget about that side of them. And we just kind of wanted to remind people that, you know, in light of Carl Nassib's groundbreaking decision, it's almost appropriate uh, that, that he did it as a member of the Raiders because they've always stood for uh, all-inclusiveness. Yeah, and when you did the deep dive on this, and it goes back to Al Davis uh, being from Brooklyn, New York, the Syracuse connection, all of the individuals that he was around at a very young age. It's obvious that Mr. Davis did not see color. He did not have a racist bone in his body at all. He clearly understood gender and the importance of everyone being an individual and winning a job or an opportunity on their merits. That really was the early basis of Al Davis that the AFL understood, Pete Rozelle and the NFL understood. With all the criticism and how much of a maverick Al Davis was, how early on did the rest of the world see this in Mr. Davis? Well, I think in talking to, to uh, people that worked with him immediately, and you know, I got a chance to talk to Art Shell for the piece, and obviously he was the first uh, African-American head coach in the modern era of uh, professional football uh, when, when Al Davis hired him. 
And going back as early as the late 60s when, when Art Shell became a member as a player of the Raiders, just in talking to Al Davis and knowing the kind of the mandate uh, about the, the team and the franchise and racism was not tolerated. Any talk of that, any kind of inclination of somebody thinking along those lines weren't there very long. And, you know, you, you hope that you could say that about every organization that's out there. Um, but I don't think, especially at that time, that was necessarily the case. Whereas the Raiders and, and, and Al Davis not only stood for it, uh, but they wouldn't tolerate it uh, under their watch. And I think from early on, players and, and employees uh, and people that knew that organization understood what they stood for. Vinny Bonsignor is our guest. Let's move to Tom Flores and the impact he has as the first Latino quarterback, then stays in the organization after Buffalo, coming back and being a coach for John Madden, an assistant to him, and the Super Bowl's four total that he won, one with Kansas City and the ones with the Raiders as an assistant and two as the head coach, and the impact that Coach Flores had when it came to the diversity of the Raiders. Yeah, no question about that. And again, talking to Art Shell, uh, he would talk to Tom Flores uh, when Tom Flores was an assistant coach with the Raiders under John Madden and, and Art Shell was a player. And, and Tom would tell Art, you know, man, I really want a chance to be the head coach. I really want to be, uh, you know, uh, take it to that next level. So it was something that in Tom's mind, as the wide receivers coach for six, seven years with the Raiders, he had an eye on that. And I think probably intuitively, he understood that it, w it was possible with the Raiders. It was something that was within the realm, uh, even at that time, uh, with the Raiders. It may not have been uh, necessarily with every organization in football. You hate to say that, but that's probably the truth of the matter. Whereas with the Raiders and their, um, you know, uh, what, they, what they've always stood for from top to bottom gave him that opportunity. And it was interesting doing my research on that. Uh, Al Davis interviewed Tom five times for that job. I mean, can you imagine that? Mm. And uh, and and he, in Tom's words, it was more along the lines of he wanted. It seemed like Al Davis wanted to put him under the fiercest amount of pressure as possible to make sure he didn't crack, to make sure he was tough enough to to, to uh, withstand it, which obviously he was, and uh, that helped lead uh, uh, Al Davis to to give him the reins. And of course. The rest is history. Two Super Bowl championships, um, one of the great coaches in NFL history, one of the great coaches, obviously, in Raiders history. Um, it was obviously the right decision. And as groundbreaking as it was, uh, the first you know Hispanic Latino uh, head coach in, in football history, the first Hispanic Latino head coach to win a Super Bowl championship, what it also told you was he was the right man for the job. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just about breaking barriers, which obviously it was. But when you, you know, whittle it right down uh, to its bare essence, Tom Flores was the right man, the most qualified uh, person for that job, and he proved that. Absolutely. Vinny Bonsignor, his cover story, Breaking Barriers, part of the Raiders' legacy. Let's move to Amy Trask, first female CEO, and the impact that she had still to this day and the importance of her role in Raider history. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's any question um, that, that Amy Trask, that decision, again, um, and you know, here's somebody that cold called the Raiders as a graduate student uh, at Cal Berkeley, uh, just, you know, lobbing a call to see if there's anything that I can, you know, any sort of a role. And it, it turned out to be an internship uh, that began, and that was in the early 80s, that began a 30-year relationship uh, with the Raiders and employment with the Raiders. Um, and, you know, I think, I think 
that hire showed that, and she worked her way up from intern to legal department uh, to obviously the CEO of, of the of the franchise. And I, I always give the Raiders credit um, in, in that regard as well. It was if they felt like you could do the job and you were right there in the organization, they were going to groom you um, and and create a path that you could follow to success. Didn't matter who you are, didn't matter what your background was, didn't matter what you looked like, didn't matter what your sex was, didn't matter what your race was, religion, any of those things. If you were the right person for the job, you were gonna get an opportunity. And Al Davis um, you know, uh, mandated that. And what was also interesting is that um, the way he treated Amy Trask was no different than he treated any other in- employee. And we all know that Mr. Davis could be, you know, uh, a-, a little rough. Uh, some bosses are. And um, and it was never there was never any kid gloves. Uh, it doesn't appear uh, with-, with Amy Trask. Uh, she was the president of the team, just like any uh, uh, and any other employee that that worked under him. And she was treated as such. There was no uh, big micro uh, scope that was put on the fact that she was a female. She was the best person for the job at that time. Uh, and he understood that and he treated her just like he would any other. And I think that's the ultimate sign of respect, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Vinny Bonsignor joins us, Raider Nation Radio, the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Now let's go to Carl Nassib. And I interviewed him when he came to the team. I'm looking forward to interviewing him down the road. He's been, this is interesting, the timing of him coming out as gay when it came about kind of as the Raiders went on vacation and broke minicamp, then the news comes out it's a global story, and he's going to control the narrative here going forward on how much he's available to talk about this, if the media is going to ask him about this. What do you expect to see, Vinny? You cover the team as good as anybody now. When you get an opportunity to sit down with him, will he make himself available? Does he want to talk about this going forward, or did he address it and he wants to put it in the past? What do you think is going to happen here? It's such an inter- interesting question, and uh, I think the timing of it from a you know organizational standpoint was probably as um, you know uh, it, it was it was the perfect time. Um, it, give, it there's a three you know four week or so runway up to the up to training camp. If this was something that he had announced um, you know before right before training camp, I think it would have been a little bit of a l- little bit different difference. Um, but this allows the story to kind of evolve. Um, and and maybe settle down, I guess, might be the, the, the right word, so that when training camp, um, you know, opens up, that it's it causes the least amount of distraction. And I say that in a good way. Uh, I think that this story needs to be amplified even more. But mm-hmm. there's also a football season to play, to play. And I know that Carl Nassib, the last thing he wants to be, to be is any sort of a distraction. So I think the way he timed – uh, the announcement uh, to also, you know, uh, create that space between now and and the regular season uh, was 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 a good move on his part. As far as his access, I think also what helps is, you know, we're still not out of COVID protocols, so uh, we don't get access to the locker room as of right now. Uh, anyway, everything will still be very very controlled in terms of uh, the media's access uh, to players. So I would imagine um, that he's probably going to do a uh, very quick uh at the very beginning of training camp um you know mass type of a thing with with uh with us the media and and i think that he'll try to move on you know from that now i'm sure there's going to be some other publications national publications that want more of an in-depth type of a type of a look into it i would think that 
th- you know, the, these next three weeks could be uh, available for him to, to be able to do that so that, again, it doesn't become this huge distraction for him and for the team uh, when, when training camp opens up. But, you know, also from our perspective, my perspective, you know, uh, to me, this is a big story. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shouldn't be. I really believe that it shouldn't be. And I think that by the time we get to training camp, um, you know, we'll, we'll deal with we'll deal with it probably one more time in a major way with, with Carl Nassib. And then for me, I just want to move on because he deserves that. We all deserve, I mean, he deserves that because he deserves to just to live his life comfortably and, um, you know, honestly, and, um, you, you know, being who he is without having to answer for it all the time. And I know in my, from my perspective, you know, it's not something that I'm going to be dwelling on. And, I, and, and mm-hmm. that's out of respect for him more than the story itself. Many months, and you know, I agree with that. I think this is a massive story. It's a global story. The first player to come out gay on a on an existing roster to do that. And the one question I want to ask him because this is his decision, and I'm really happy he made it as a Raider. I think a fair question is going to be if you get to it first is he didn't make this decision with Cleveland or Tampa Bay. Why did he make it now? And I would hope part of the answer would be, and I have no idea if it is is that he felt comfortable within this organization with what you wrote about breaking barriers and he feels comfortable with this family unit here. Yeah, and, you know, Art Shell brought that up. Uh, that was the first thing that he thought about was, you know, there's something about the Raiders that creates a comfort level to be who you are. And um, and and obviously, uh, you know, and, and in Carl Nassib's case, it, it was 15 years that he talked about it, And that's what was so... Um, striking to me was if you watched, if you if you read uh, the, the the statement that he put out immediately after doing the video, he talked about how he struggled with this for 15 years. And can you only imagine having to suppress something uh, and hide something, uh, not because you're not necessarily proud of it, uh, you know, because it is who you are, but because you're worried about what the reaction is going to be. And um, you know, I'm glad that the reaction has been positive. Uh, hopefully for for Carl, it gives him peace and confidence moving forward, but also, you know, anyone that's in a situation uh, similar to that, where they're hiding something, worried about what the reaction is going to be, the love that he's received, hopefully will will set the stage to make somebody else more comfortable uh, to do it. But, but you're right. I do believe that him being on the Raiders probably did create a little bit of a comfort level uh, mm-hmm. for him to go ahead and, and make this announcement. I thought he was a bubble player this year. I thought he underachieved. He wasn't activated in many of those games where you came on the pregame show with Eric Allen and I, and we were wondering who was going to be inactive. You were one of the first to put that tweet out, and I was surprised. And I just wondered where he fit in with this team. And when you get to a 53-man roster, I'm always wondering, is a guy like him going to be the 49th, 52nd, 53rd player to make the team? Or does he show enough in the – offseason to prove with the depth that was added to this defensive line that there's no problem with the cap hit and the money that he's getting paid that he's automatically going to make the team well i could say this he looked really good in otas and minicamp he looked uh in in great shape he was flying around uh uh, at practice as was uh you know max crosby so um i think he has a chance to really be a solid rotational player and if he could just mm-hmm. give them what they've what what he's done in the past you know five to six sacks off of the bench in a rotational um role then it, you know uh you could s- 
squabble about how much money he's making and all that. Um, but at the end of the day, if he could give them six sacks coming off the bench and some solid snaps uh, in relief, then it's money worth uh, th- that was worth spending. And when you start talking about and Gus Bradley, you know, has brought this up, you know, not just being able to put one defensive line out there, but maybe two. When you start talking about Unique Ngakwe and Clee Farrell and Max Crosby and Malcolm Kuntz and Carl Nassib as the rotational, uh, as the as the primary defensive ends, kind of rotating in for each other, you're going to get if 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 everyone just does what they're capable of doing, the Raiders are going to be in a much better position to be able to get into late game situations, those closing two minutes with as fresh uh, as players as possible. And not just that, but then later on in the season, uh, be able to to create a situation where you're as fresh uh, and have as much gas left uh, in the tank as possible. I don't think that that was the case last year. I think that, um, you know, Max Crosby, to me played too many snaps and and it showed in his performance and you know some of the some of the uh, efficiency levels of the snaps that he played and part of that was he was hurt part of that was he played too many too too, too long too many snaps but also Carl Nassib wasn't doing what he was paid to do and you know I, I hate to look at something, uh, you know, as big as what he, you know, uh, announced uh, last week, a week ago today, and wonder, is that going to help him on the field? But it's a fair question. Now that maybe the weight of the world has been lifted off of his shoulders, you know, maybe that helps him become a better player and in turn help the Raiders uh, get, a, get a better return on, on their investment. Because if he can, that defensive line just gets that much deeper and it's already yeah. much deeper than it was last year. Hey, Vinny, wrapping this up, it's interesting. Now you're a talk show host on on top of covering the beat, and I heard it again today on a show, someone just going for the low-hanging fruit. The Raiders' defense, the roster's no good. There's no depth put into anyone nationally looking at the upgrades of the Raiders, in which, to me, were three big upgrades. Four, Gus Bradley, Yannick Ngakwe, Casey Hayward, and Trevon, uh, Trevon Merrick. So if you look at those three players being added to a, as starters on the defense and a defensive coordinator who brought in other coaches, that to me is pretty significant. I mean, what was the other option? The Raiders bringing in six new starters? I didn't see that happening. I got Cleland Farrell. I got Mad Max. I, I look at... You know, more of Morrow playing well last year. We knew Littleton was coming back, and Kwiatkowski was here as a starter. Trayvon Mullen isn't going anywhere. Maybe, as you've talked about, we'll see what happens with Arnett. But there wasn't that many holes to bring in new starters. So I think the Raiders brought in three new starters who are going to start game one. That's pretty significant to me on the defensive side. Yeah, and it's actually a sign of progress, um, to be honest with you, because last year it was seven new starters. The year before, I wouldn't even hear the year before, but I know it was a whole bunch of other new starters. You can't go into every year um, needing to bring in seven, eight, six new starters. That's not how you build a, a, a championship team. You need cohesiveness. You need chemistry. You need guys to settle into their roles. Um, and and I think Clee Farrell, Max Crosby, Yannick Ngakwe, Quinton Jefferson, Solomon Thomas, Jonathan Hankins, Malcolm Kuntz, um, you know, you just named the three linebackers. That's the first time to my knowledge, that the Raiders have brought back their three starting linebackers in a while. It's been a while since they've done that, and that's not good, and it's good that they are. Uh, Trayvon Mullen, um, you know, Jonathan Abram playing a position that's probably more conducive to his skill set. Trayvon Morig, I, I think that what the Raiders did this year made sense, and that's really all you can ask for at this point. You know, it's going to – everyone's going to figure out – 
in real time whether the moves worked or not. And that's dependent on whether these guys deliver or not. That's the bottom line. But if you look at it logically, they needed mm-hmm. to fix their, their pass rush. They went out and brought in a whole bunch of new players uh, on the defensive line. Uh, I forgot to mention Darius Phylon, who's also got a nice track record mm-hmm. of performance. Uh, they needed a they needed stability and veterans uh, in the secondary. They did that with Carl Joseph, with Casey Hayward, uh, with Rasul Douglas. Um, so it made a lot of sense on paper. I also think the Kenyon Drake signing uh, was an underrated signing, and I think that um, that's going to pay dividends as well. So to me, what the Raiders did made sense. To me, looking at the looking at the team the way I saw it in minicamp and OTAs, it looks deeper and better. But but of course, it's all going to be be dependent on what happens when they get on the field. That's the great unknown. But otherwise, I I, I have to say that they they. Uh, checked off the boxes that they needed to. Now it just needs to happen on the field. Vinny, last one. I have the important preseason dates like you do. In August 14th, preseason game number one. First cuts August 17th. Second cuts August 24th. Third cuts August 31st. I really believe that this is going to be one of the most fascinating preseasons I've seen in a long time when it comes down to final cuts because I don't know who's playing. And I'm a believer if you're a non-playoff team, I want to see guys playing in the preseason. I get it. Other people disagree with me. If Some people don't want to see Carr at all going into a game against Lamar Jackson and Ben Roethlisberger week one and two on a short week. I differ on that, but I'm not the coach. What do you expect to see finally on the amount of time we'll see in these three uh, preseason games with starters and players that need to prove themselves in year two or year three? Yeah, I think the Raiders go the traditional route. Uh, I think you'll see the starters out there for a couple of series in that first game, uh, and then it'll progressively get more. Uh, I could see them playing, you know, maybe a whole quarter, maybe a whole half uh, in that in that third preseason game. Um, now, Grant, or maybe it's the second preseason game because uh, of how things mm-hmm. work right now. Um, you know, with with only three preseason games, but also, so I I, I expect their starters to play they, they have to especially okay. that young defense and especially that young offensive line and also circle uh, uh august 20 you know like august 17th through the 21st uh, in los angeles you know the raiders are going to go uh practice against the rams for a couple of days out in thousand oaks and you know there's a lot of reasons to for that for, that that's going to be a big thing for the Ra- raiders mm. but specifically i can't wait to see Aaron Donald, number 99, um, you know, uh, do his thing against that young offensive line. I'm not going to say that it's going to be easy after that, but it's going to be much easier after you're dealing with 99. Now, keep in mind, the Ram- Aaron Donald's probably not going to play in that game, but he is going to practice. So that's you're probably looking at about 75 to 100 snaps between the two days that Aaron Donald will be working against the first-team Raiders defensive line, something that you're not going to see during the game but will happen uh, mm-hmm. during practice and I think that that young Raiders offensive line against the Rams defensive line which is good outside of Aaron Donald and Aaron Donald mm-hmm. makes it spectacular is going to be a huge benefit um, above and beyond just just the preseason games that they're going to play thanks Vinny for the extended time the column was great I wanted to get you up great work as always really appreciate it JT thank you so much man always a pleasure you got it, Vinny Bonsignor, our teammate here on Raider Nation Radio. This article needed to be written. Leading by example, breaking barriers, part of Raiders' legacy. I retweeted it. Vinny tweeted it. Read it. And if you're into the Raiders historically, which I know you are on their flagship station, very well written, and it needed to come. Would this article have needed to be written 
if Carl Nassib did not come out as gay? Probably not, because we all know the history of Art Shell, Tom Flores, and Amy Trask. We know that history, but you add Carl Nassib and first active player to come out as gay into the history of the Raiders and inclusion, it's a big deal. And I think the, the story has been covered properly, but as one of the things that Vinny and I were talking about here, the timing of this is really unique to me. The timing of when the announcement came as the Raiders broke minicamp, not on the Raiders' terms, and it doesn't have to be. This is Carl's decision. He made it at home in Westchester, Pennsylvania, on his own Instagram, which is great. He has the he made that decision, which is fine. And then the Raiders go away. They're in vacation mode now, pure vacation mode. Teams out of you know the staff is working, but the coaches and the players, most of them out of town. Uh, those players that are working out back in their homes or doing whatever they're doing. And then when we come back, it's going to be training camp, and there's going to be a lot more media around. And how long will this question or someone will have the opportunity to sit down with Carl nationally and locally about the timing of his decision? Uh, Or do we not need to hear it at all? And if we don't hear it at all, I'm fine. I'm fine with all of that. Uh, Thanks again to Vinny Bonsignor. Fantastic, in-depth conversation on the legacy of the Raiders with inclusion. And that was brought to you by Sam and Ash, Sam and Ash Law, because you deserve what's right. If you get into any type of accident, you got two for one. Sam and Ashley, they'll help you out. They'll get you through it because you deserve what's right. And that's full compensation for your injuries. 702-820-1234. Kurt Heelan is going to join us from Pro Basketball Talk. Why? Because it's the NBA playoffs and we're deep into the conference finals want to get an nba hit in here and then tomorrow big show as i'll be live from the raiders facility in henderson as we're going to have a big show a lot of things happen look at france just came back on switzerland before i interviewed Vinny, they were down one nothing and now france is up two to one in the euro 2020 exciting to see It's sore right now. It's uh, it's uh, it's hurting. It's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hurting a little bit, and uh, it's sore. I got some treatment on. I'm gonna go get some more in the morning. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's more. That's all I can do right now is get treatment, and then, yeah, when I came back in, it was just kind of sore, and I maybe mad I couldn't really go as fast as I wanted to, and then when I did, it hurt. So, uh, just gotta just gotta get treatment, and hopefully it feels better for next game. That is Trey Young. What a bizarre injury. When he got injured, when he stepped on the ankle of a referee who was out of bounds, obviously, they were up by three when he went to the locker room and then all hell broke loose and Milwaukee comes back in the fourth quarter and wins that game. What happens if Trey Young does not injure his ankle in that game? Could that have been the difference of him starting off not going to the locker room Big story as we bring in Kurt Heelan at Basketball Talk, lead writer for NBC Sports covering the NBA. And, Kurt, we spent a lot of time talking about this. I talked to callers about it last night. A good timing that you're coming on because you wrote about that Trey Young injury. Walk me through how you saw it. Yeah, it, obviously it's a fluke thing, right, Like to step on the referee's foot. I, I... – the referee – I went back and watched it again. The referee's just not in the field of play, right? He's not on the court. He's, he's actually stationed just outside of it. So it's, 
it's I can't blame the official. I think this is just one of those fluke, you know, maybe he could have moved or something, but it's just a random kind of occurrence. And it really, though, he, you know, clearly was not the same after he came back. It was, I think, one of three shooting one of four um, and not able to lift the team up while Middleton, I mean, Middleton outscored the Hawks in the fourth quarter. He's had 20 and they had 17. He was phenomenal in the fourth. And and maybe the game ends the same way. They've been able to be kind of physical with Drew, uh, Trey a lot of this, and maybe they could have slowed him in the fourth. But I will add, he'd had a really good game up to that point. So I, you never quite know. It's just I don't know that there's anyone to blame. Like sometimes there are just fluke things that happen, man. That's just part of the luck, the luck that happens in a playoff. That's the same thing I said. The referee was not at fault. He's out of play. It's a fluke play by a player that kind of flares around a little bit and takes step-back jumpers and likes to make the creative pass there. But I want to stay with Middleton because the way – when you can do that on the road, you know, there's not many players who have ever played in the history of this sport that outscored another team in the conference finals on the road basically under five minutes, I'm sure – Bird's done it. There's been a couple of guys who've probably been able to do it. LeBron, I could imagine, but that is very rare what he did, and it wasn't Giannis. It was Middleton living up to his role on what could be a championship team. He's a guy who gets overlooked a lot, too, partially because, you know, they're, it's in Milwaukee and everybody's not been high on, you know, can they really live up to the potential? They haven't always been uh, that team. And the other part of it is, Look, Giannis grabs the spotlight, man. Like, I mean, that is a big thing. But he is a deserving All NBA. All like, this isn't you know, this isn't some fluke that he got there. He has become an elite player in this league, and he hadn't been good enough, frankly, through the first couple games of this series. He, they needed more out of him. They absolutely got it on on a on the road, which is like what they really needed. They they. If they lose this one, then game four becomes a lot of pressure uh, by picking it up. You know, I don't want to say they're in control of the series. To me, they're the more talented team in this series, and they should have some confidence going forward. Kurt Heelan is our guest. So one of your colleagues, Dan Feldman, wrote about Damian Lillard could leave the Blazers due to blowback over the Chauncey Billups hire. And when your team is putting this together, this is very important, this topic, going forward, because I've said this to you over the years, he'd never win up in Portland, most likely. I mean, the Suns could win. Utah's very good. I just don't think Portland can get that many players to gravitate up there. And why would Chauncey take the job if there was a chance that Dame could leave? Where is this headed? What are you hearing on this? What are your sources telling you? Do you think Portland has enough to keep Damian Lillard? I'm really curious about that because he he was he didn't stand in the way of this. Uh, let's start here. Terry Stotts, everybody around the league pretty much knew, and I don't think it was a secret. Terry Stotts was going to be gone unless they made some sort of miraculous playoff run. But I'll just say, I'd have to think back about it. But like at least six weeks ago, I I had heard Chauncey Billup. Basically, this is Chauncey's Billup. Stotts isn't going to survive, and it's Billups' job. And eventually, you know, Mike D'Antoni and 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 Becky Hammond, who are both you know qualified and, and deserving, came up in the conversation. But this was always Billups' job, and he did not stand in the way of this. He did not look. He is still Damian Lillard. He is the face of this franchise. If he had gone to them and say, "I don't want Billups," 
they would not have gone down the road with Billups. I, I, I genuinely believe, like, if the yes. star players have that kind of power, he didn't until there was backlash because of, of uh, uh, he settled a sexual, uh, civil sexual uh, assault lawsuit back in 97, so like 25 years ago. Um, that that doesn't, by the way, that just does not play well in Portland. Like, it's, it really doesn't play well in Portland, which is goes back, frankly, to the Jailblazers thing. Like that city is still, that fan base is still scarred by that team in a lot of ways, and doesn't want to re. So it goes way back there. But he didn't stand in the way of it. It's kind of weird for him to now say, "Well, I might leave, but try to push his way out of it because of that." But Chris Haynes reported that, and Chris Haynes and like, if let's just say, if Chris Haynes is reporting it at Yahoo Sports, you might as well assume it's somebody from Lillard's camp saying it. Yeah, and he has a deep connection in the East Bay, as you know, yep. and that's where Dame's yep. from and his dad. So, look, I, yep. I think his reporting, I'll go with that. I just think it's interesting because if Damian Lillard wants to stay and they don't bring in a significant yep. piece, if it's C.J. McCollum that's- still and they're trying to maybe try to recruit someone else and it doesn't happen – Nothing's going to change with that franchise, and Chauncey is going to take over a team with Dame that could probably get him into the playoffs and maybe through one round. So if he's going to stay, Chauncey's got to hope he stays, and then Chauncey's got to go out and recruit. All Chauncey's got to do is get one player better than a mid-level, a former star. You know, Carmelo was there and played well for a little bit, but he's got to get someone younger with more upside that can help him win. And they don't have a lot of cap space, which is why you hear a lot of talk about trades and trades – Look, C.J. McCollum is the biggest name, but like if you trade C.J. McCollum for Ben Simmons, which has been out there, um, by the way, I don't love that for Philly, but that's a whole different story. If you make that trade, how much better do you really get? Is, is Ben Simmons like the guy who puts you over the top, even if Ben Simmons no. gets his confidence back? Like I don't, especially in a West where, hey, Suns aren't going anywhere. Denver's not going anywhere. Utah's not going anywhere. The Lakers still have LeBron James. The Clippers are going to re-sign Kawhi Leonard. Like, the West is stacked, and I don't know what moves Portland can make that are going to be available to them that get them over the hump of those teams, Like, or even puts them in the conversation with whoever's going to be, whoever you want to put at the top of the West next year. To me, they're a 6-7-8 seed that might be in the play-in again. Like, I don't... like. I don't know how they get over that hump with the again with the moves available to them. Kurt Heelan joins us, Pro Basketball Talk. Follow him at Basketball Talk. So this is big now. Finally with Kawhi, are there rumors, rumblings, you're based in L.A. with his injury, yeah. Clippers staff and medical there, because we know that imploded his relationship in San Antonio. But I'm led to believe that he doesn't want to leave Balmer, the richest owner in sports. Yeah. He wants to live in Southern California. The team's pretty good. The franchise is very strong financially. He's not going to cause a rift here over another injury again, is he? No, not. I don't. I, I would be shocked if we saw that. A, he fought too hard to get here, right? Like he fought too Absolutely. hard to get to Southern California, and set up by the way a team that, frankly, if he were playing right now, we might be having a very different conversation about Absolutely. the series. I don't want to. Ta- I don't want. I don't want to take anything away from how well Phoenix has played. But we're talking Kawhi Leonard, when healthy, is still a top-five player in the NBA. He is just absolutely elite and has been in these playoffs. He he is not out there, and it just changes everything for them. 
Well, um, let me stop you for a second. Anywhere. Let me stop you for a second. One second. I'm telling you this. If Kawhi Leonard was 100% healthy, that was the lowest scoring game in the NBA yep. this year. It happened to be in the conference finals. They win that game. I guarantee it. And I think they're up three games to one in the series. I think the series is flipped. So Phoenix is going to catch a break. I think the Clippers are dead without Kawhi. If oh, they yeah. close them out four to one, it's because Kawhi Leonard didn't play in the series. Not only when you lose Kawhi, do you lose a guy who's you know twenty points a game, or you know twenty five points a game, whatever. We might have was he at thirty? He was he absolutely tore up the second round against Utah until he, until he got injured. You are also losing your best defender. You are losing, if not the best perimeter defender in the league, right at it. Right, so you're losing a guy you can just lock down on people. So it it, it impacts them dramatically on both ends. But the real and. Look, Marcus Morris isn't right for them. They've had to play now 13 games in 25 days. They have not had a game or 26 days as of today. But like they have not, had, it's been every other day for them since the middle of the Dallas series. Their shots were front of the rim, man. They're just they look like a team that's a little bit tired. And I, I'm with you. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't see them bouncing back. I don't think there's going to be another game in LA. Um, but long term, he doesn't go anywhere. Like he's going to re-sign with the Clippers. That team is going to come back, and you know they'll tweak the edges. But that team's going to come back next year. They've got Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and they tweak the edges. That team is back yeah. in the mix, man. It's, it comes down to health and, and breaks, but like they're in that mix, and he's not going to walk away from that. Um, I think you know, do they change the training staff out or something? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see what happens. But but that that it's all in the periphery. He's not going anywhere. Absolutely. Good to hear from you, my friend. Uh, well, I see you out in Summer League here in Vegas as they announced that, and tickets are on sale, and everybody's ready for another great Summer League. But coming off coming off the NBA quickly, a quick Summer League and starting up again, these players are going to need some time off, but I'm sure you're coming out here, right? I am, I am going to be in Vegas for, yeah, I will be there through the start of Summer League. They pushed the start back a, yes. a couple days from when they normally do because of that uh, Olympics thing they're doing over there, you know that thing so they're starting a little bit later but it, it will be going on and i yeah i will we got to get together when i'm out there i will be there for sure thanks my friend look forward to your lunch on me nba summer league we just had the great albert hall on as we're getting ready for that looking forward to nba summer league get your tickets get your tickets for nba summer league that's kurt healing what a game between france and switzerland paul pogba had one of the, the greatest goal of the tournament he bend the ball in from way out and put up France 3-1, to one, and now Switzerland in the 83rd minute, they get a goal, and this is an unbelievable game in the Euro, the Euro 2020 UEFA. So massive game on right now globally. More people are watching this soccer game than are watch the Stanley. Oh, my God! Did Switzerland score again, or was he offsides? think he was offsides. More people are watching this game than will watch the NBA playoffs, the NBA finals, and the Stanley Cup. Ready for this? Combined. More people are watching this soccer game right now than will watch our NBA finals. Period. Fact, not fiction. I don't know why you're not. There's a big deal. And it's global, but we're not there yet. Maybe in another hundred years, the world will stop and we'll watch global soccer and understand the presence of it. Really good game to watch here. Thanks again to Kurt Heelan. Always a pleasure catching up with him as we're brought to you by Modelo. I will be drinking some nice ice-cold Modellos on ice in another country Wednesday. 
and I am looking forward to that because I love my bucket of Modelo's in my backyard or when I'm traveling and getting a rare road trip. Looking forward to that. Modelo, the official cerveza of the Las Vegas Raiders, brewed as a model of what good beer should be. I like my bucket of Modelo's on ice. It's my reward for a great week on Raider Nation Radio. When we come back to breaking news of the day, Scotty Pippen calling Phil Jackson a racist. No. Scotty, what are you doing? Proving to me once again that divorce, divorce wipes out athletes more than drugs or alcohol. He's unraveled since his crazy Kardashian wife left him. For a younger man, he's unraveled. Scotty Pippen, the great Scotty Pippen. You won't believe this audio. Stick around. It's coming up next. The clock will drain the final. The Bucks 113, the Atlanta Hawks 102. Bucks have a 2-1 lead with game four Tuesday night in Atlanta. I like them. They look good to me. They look good to me. And obviously the Clippers are done in my opinion. And Switzerland just scored on France to tie it up at three. Amazing France had a 3-1 lead. And here we go. Switzerland scores in the 90th minute to tie it up against France. This would be a global collapse if France loses this game. All right, so here's the deal. Today the big story was Scottie Pippen on the Dan Patrick Show. We're going to play you this in its entirety. It's about four minutes. I haven't heard it. I just heard a couple of sound bites on Twitter. So let's credit the Dan Patrick Show. Scottie Pippen, the number one story in sports outside global soccer, trending right now from earlier today. Help me understand the GQ article where you talked about the 1994 playoff game when you refused to go back in the game and Phil set up the play for Tony Kukoc. Well, I mean, it's not much to be said. If you go back and look at when Scottie Pippen entered the Bulls and when Tony Kukoc entered the Bulls and who deserved the last shot of the game. No, no, no. I understand that, Scotty. I'm just going by what you said. You said you need to read between the fine lines. And then you go on to say it was a racial move to give him, Tony Kukoc, a ride. So, well, I mean, if you knew that Scottie Pippen had been with the Bulls from 87, battled through the Pistons and every other team that we had to get to those three championships, wouldn't you give Scottie Pippen one opportunity to get a last second shot without Michael Jordan? Like one year without Michael Jordan, can I get one shot? Like, I'm doing all the dirty work. But all of that I understand from the basketball standpoint. But when so, you say a racial move. Well, why would why would Tony, who was a rookie, get the last second shot and you put me out of bounds? That's what I mean, racial. Like, that was Scottie Pippen's team. But, but Scottie Phil Pippen then, was but, but, on pace to be an MVP that year, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, why would you put him in a position – not to be successful. Why wouldn't you put him in a position to succeed? Michael Jordan is not there. So who's next in line for you? But if you talk to Phil about this, because you, by saying a racial move, then you're you're calling Phil a racist. I don't got a problem with that. 
Do you think Phil was or is? Oh, yeah. I mean, do you remember Phil Jackson left the Lakers, went, wrote a book on Kobe Bryant, and then came back and coached him? I mean, who would do that? You name someone in professional sports that would do that, you know? I think he tried to expose Kobe in a way that he shouldn't have. You're the head coach, and you're the guy that sits in the locker room and tells the players, this is a circle. And everything stays within the circle because that's what team is about. But you as the head coach open it up. And now you go out and you try to belittle at that time, probably one of the greatest players in the game. Well, it feels like he's disloyal. I don't know if that makes him a racist. Well, that's your way of putting it out. And I have my way. I was so in the now you get, let's jump in, Bobby. Now you get the brunt of that. So there's another minute or so left, and you can find it, I'm sure, on Dan Patrick's website. Uh, and that's a big deal. So for Scottie Pippen, for Scottie Pippen to insinuate that Phil Jackson is a racist is incredibly remarkable to me. And again, that's Scottie Pippen's opinion. I'm just a white guy behind a microphone, but Phil Jackson has coached a lot of African-American basketball players, and this is the only guy to ever insinuate this. And, you know, Scotty was pretty bitter about Tony Kukoc getting the last shot, and Scotty Pippen still cannot come to grips with the fact that he wasn't given that last shot. So his bitterness for that moment seems to be driving his opinion that Phil Jackson's a racist. You know, we throw that word racist around a lot at times, and if it, if it tags an individual... That individual has to live with that tag. And some racists get away without ever being exposed. I think it's pretty fair to say that we're looking at Phil Jackson now having to defend himself because Scottie Pippen told Dan Patrick he's a racist. That is a huge story. Jalen Rose talked about the token Kevin Love getting on the Olympic team, which I thought was completely out of bounds, unbelievably out of bounds on his part. And now we have the story here. Tell you, we're at a time in our country where there shouldn't be as much racial tension as there is, especially after the killing of George Floyd and what's happened where there was a lot of harmony and people coming together and there was a lot of rioting and a lot of bad behavior. And we're supposed to be getting better with all of this. And some days I wonder, but that is a huge sports story because You know, that was my era of the NBA. I'm a Knicks fan, and the Knicks couldn't get by Jordan and Pippen. And I think Pippen is a brilliant player, legacy-wise. You know, for those who say Pippen was a part of Michael Jordan's team, I always say this on the radio, always. How many rings would would Michael Jordan have won without Scottie Pippen? Think of that. Give me a number. I'd say it'd be three. Wouldn't be six. We wouldn't even be talking about Michael Jordan and LeBron James. It'd be over by now. Jordan had Pippen, one of the greatest defenders in NBA history on the perimeter, a clutch player most of the time when that one time he took himself out of a game and it's still part of his legacy. And Scotty's still bitter about it because of the documentary, The Last Dance. And the documentary on The Last Dance did not shine well the entire time on Scotty Pippen. I'll be talking about this story tonight on my national show, every night, 7 to 10 p.m., Sirius XM 82. Mad Dog Sports Radio tomorrow. I'm from the Raider facility in Henderson. And then 
Manana after that, gone for a couple of days. Because, I mean, if Coach Gruden can go on vacation and Darren Waller can go on vacation, can't JT the Brick get away for a few days? It's the summer before the start of the Raiders season. Thanks again to Vinny Bonsignor, Kurt Heelan, Mike Ciani, who was fantastic. And thanks to Bobby for putting the whole show together. That's about it. Have a great day, everybody. This France and Switzerland game just went into extra time. It's an amazing game. Turn it on if you can. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.